Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing in the book of Acts. We started last session in part 8 of what will be a 12-part series, and we mentioned that some Bible scholars actually believe that when Luke wrote the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 12 were like volume 1, and then chapters 13 through 28 are volume 2. And there is some reason to believe that. Um, the content is quite different. The first volume, if you will, dealt a lot more with the Apostle Peter, his ministry. It centered more around Jerusalem and the beginnings of them moving out into Samaria, Judea, and starting to take the gospel to the Gentiles. When we come to Acts 13, uh, the emphasis from here on out is definitely on the Apostle Paul and others who uh, co-labor with him, but he is the central figure from here on out. And in part 8, we'll be looking at the first of his three apostolic missions, or often called missionary journeys. In part 9, we'll look at his second missionary trip, and then in part 10, his third missionary journey. Um, as I mentioned, we just began this part 8 in our last session. All of the notes and the audio recordings of these are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. If you ever miss any of the studies, uh, we encourage you to go back and catch up on the notes and the recordings there. Alright, we saw that at the start of chapter 13, the focus is on the church in Antioch, Syria. This is now... Um, way beyond Jerusalem. The gospel is now prospering in the Gentile world, and a major gospel center has been raised up in Antioch. And from Antioch, several of these major apostolic missions would be launching out. And certainly this first one, which began with the Holy Spirit setting apart Barnabas and Saul, we know him better as Paul now, Saul of Tarsus, they were sent out from the Antioch church by the Holy Spirit on this first missionary trip. And we got as far last time as them coming to a place called Paphos, where Paul encountered this false prophet and sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, or Elymas. And we're not going to go into all that again, but how uh, this man was trying to hinder the ministry and even trying to hinder people from coming to the Lord. And God dealt with Elymas in a very strong and a powerful way. And when the proconsul saw the judgment that came upon this false prophet. It's what led him to give his life to Christ. And we're going to look at a very lengthy portion uh, tonight, which will actually take us right through, hopefully, to the end of chapter 13. And most of this uh, remaining portion of Acts chapter 13 is going to be a lengthy message that Paul delivers in one of the synagogues. And it's one of a number of sermons or messages that are recorded for us by Luke in the book of Acts. <clears throat> and each one of them, I think, is worthy of careful study so that we can see how they presented the gospel, how they changed their strategy and their approach 
based upon the audience that they were speaking to, the messages, for instance, that were given in synagogues to the Jews were very different from messages that were given out in the marketplace to the Gentiles. And so, in this case, we're going to be privileged to read this long message that Paul delivered to the Jewish audience in a certain synagogue. So bear with me as we read a rather long portion here. In Acts 13, we're going to read from verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. That's verse 52. Here we go. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue ruler sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled forty years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now let me pause here for just a second. (coughs) We've noted this already with some of the other speeches or messages delivered, particularly um, we remember the lengthy message that Stephen gave the day that he was put to death and became the first martyr in the early church. A lot of similarities you can see in both of those messages. Again, because they were both addressing a Jewish audience they both draw upon their extensive knowledge from the scriptures of the history of Israel. And this was a very important strategy that they both used to, first of all, uh, show their audience that these were uh, true Jews speaking to them who were quite knowledgeable of their own heritage and their own history. And of course, Paul is now going to spring from that history into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And very carefully, he has led up to this point uh, with the people coming out of Egypt and God taking them through the wilderness Uh, into the promised land, overthrowing the seven nations of Canaan, and then through the period of the judges and the prophet Samuel, until finally uh, God gave them kings. Their first king, Saul, and then their second king, David. Paul is now going to use King David as a springboard to start presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, after mentioning David in verse 22, here's where he continues. From this man's descendants, that's David, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, 
John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. <laughs> Notice Paul didn't waste a whole lot of time with the Jewish history. He's anxious to get right into the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, after mentioning David, he goes right into the fact that Jesus is the son of David. He's a descendant from the lineage of David. And so, he, he uses that to now introduce the Savior, Jesus. And in verse 25, as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one, no, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. You may recall several of Peter's sermons quite similar to this section of Paul's message, where once he's tied it in to the Savior Jesus, he goes right into the fact that it was the very Jews who did not recognize him, they rejected him, they condemned him to death, and in so doing, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophets and the predetermined plan of God. But, having put him to death, they would always emphasize this, verse 30 again, but God raised him from the dead. So, he's now presented Christ, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. Again, sorry to keep pausing, but because Paul is addressing a Jewish audience, he knows they know the scriptures, they know the prophets, they know the Psalms, and so he very freely quotes from the scriptures that his audience would be familiar with. Later, when we see Paul preaching to Gentiles, he doesn't do that, but he will borrow heavily from the Old Testament scriptures to prove his point here. So, quoting from Psalm 2, he says, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Tying that directly to the Lord Jesus. Verse 34, The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. The same psalm, Psalm 16, that Peter quoted from in one of his earlier sermons. Verse 36, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from 
by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, continuing on their travels, they have now come to a place called Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused with Antioch, Syria, from whence they began this journey. So they're now in this place, Pisidian Antioch. And already in verse 13, Luke gives us a very important detail that we'll return to a little later in the book of Acts. John Mark, who joined them in Antioch on this journey, has very quickly deserted them. He left them and went back to Jerusalem. His departure from Paul and Barnabas would become a major source of contention later on. We'll wait till we get to that in Acts 15, but we're already introduced to the problem here. As soon as they were leaving Pamphylia to come to Pisidian Antioch, John Mark leaves them. When this is described later on in Acts 15, um, a much stronger word is used, he deserted them. It says there in Acts 15, Paul did not think it wise to take John Mark with them because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So, already there's a small problem brewing one of their helpers, John Mark, has left them and gone back to Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. We're not told why John left. Uh, his home was in Jerusalem. You remember his mother's house was the scene of the prayer meeting on the night when Peter was released from prison. Uh, it could have simply been homesickness. He wanted to go back home. We're just not told why he left them so quickly to go back to Jerusalem. But again, we'll take this up again in more detail 
when we get to Acts 15. So, the apostles, as was always their custom, whenever they visited a new town or a new region, if there was a synagogue there, they always went first to the synagogue. And even if there wasn't a synagogue, they would always seek out any Jews who were in that place first, following the formula that was given, salvation is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. So they very religiously followed that custom, that formula, if you will, and we're going to see it over and over again as we proceed in the book of Acts. So it's not an accident or a coincidence that as soon as they've come to Pisidian Antioch, they've gone to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we're told in verse 15, in the service, as was the custom, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Apparently, this was a courtesy often afforded any visitors who may have been from out of town or from another place who happened to be in the synagogue meeting that day, uh, giving them the opportunity to give a message of greeting, or as indicated here, a message of encouragement for the people. Well, Paul was not going to pass up this opportunity and so he jumps to his feet, and as he would later teach his disciple Timothy, you have to be ready in season and out to preach the gospel at all times. Whether or not he was expecting to be given this opportunity or not, he was ready for it. And that tells us, again, something about Paul's preparation for his calling. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He had studied them inside and out. God had shown him many of the scriptures in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was all but ready to show this Jewish audience how some of those scriptures had now been fulfilled in the person, in the life, and in the works of Jesus Christ. So, if you have a message of encouragement, please speak. So, Paul jumps to the floor, and as we've already seen in the, in the opening part of his message, he simply traces their Jewish history from Egypt through the judges, and then on to the first two kings, Saul and David, with the obvious purpose of using that to lead into Jesus Christ. He then explained how God brought the Savior Jesus from David's lineage. He was of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David, and so he ties all that in to begin to now present the good news of Jesus Christ. What does he emphasize? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Just as we've seen in all the other presentations of the gospel, they always centered their message around Christ crucified, Christ buried, and Christ resurrected. Then, Paul gives his final appeal to his audience, and he refers to them as brothers. He wants them to know that he's a fellow Jew, he can identify with their Jewish heritage, he knows the Jewish uh, history and the Jewish scriptures probably better than anyone in that synagogue, and so now he's ready to make his appeal. 
And basically, he does it in several things. First of all, he declares there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Secondly, that there is justification for everyone who believes. And he emphasizes a justification that could not be obtained through the law of Moses. Paul would later expound on this in much greater depth in his epistle to the Romans on this doctrine of justification by faith, not by works, not by observing the law, but by trusting in Jesus Christ, one is declared righteous. That's justification. So, there's forgiveness, there's justification, and then he gives a stern warning from one of the Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk. He's actually quoting Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, where he warns them not to fulfill the words of that prophet by scoffing and rejecting the good news through unbelief. Well, as is often the case in the rest of the book of Acts, there's going to be a mixed response to Paul's message. Many embraced it. They even invited Paul and Barnabas to come back the next Sabbath because they wanted to hear more. Many of them seemed to have a sincere hunger and a desire to hear more of Paul's preaching. And so, on the next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It says in verse 44, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Well, we observe several things. First of all, what an impact Paul's first message had on this city. Now it's created such a stir, the whole city has come out to hear more. But, we also see something very familiar by now. The Jews, many of them, were filled with jealousy. Key word, jealousy. We saw it way back in Jerusalem with Peter and the other apostles' ministry there. We see the same thing here. What's happening is the word of God is going out. Many people are embracing the good news of the gospel. And particularly the Jewish leaders are sensing that they're losing their hold on the people. And of course, their position is being challenged. And so, because of jealousy, they start to oppose and attack Paul and Barnabas. God was really starting to move. Many hearts were being touched, and here it comes. Persecution, opposition, all because of jealousy. It's amazing, but this still happens today. Not with Jews, it happens in churches. And it's basically the same uh, scenario. Those who are already established in positions of leadership feel challenged or threatened when God begins to move afresh and anew. Hearts are being touched. People are really returning to God with true repentance and true faith. The status quo is being threatened, and sadly, rather than embrace the fresh move of God's Spirit and become a part of it, they feel the only thing they can do is attack it, oppose it, 
try to discredit it, and if none of that works, lock them up, put them into prison. So, obviously, some of the Jews that are referred to here as being filled with jealousy were those in positions of leadership. They, they stood to lose something. Something was being challenged here, and they watched the crowds that were now coming to hear Paul, and they sensed that they were losing their following. And they saw many, many people flocking toward the apostles, and so this caused them to speak abusively against them and to vehemently oppose them. (coughs) Quoting from the New King James Version, this verse reads, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and, contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Actually, if you look at the original Greek, that word blaspheming is the most literal translation. Uh, NIV says talked abusively, but they were actually uh, blaspheming. They were really fired up and coming against the words of Paul, coming against his entire message and blaspheming. Verse 36 uh, is a real turning point, and we need to study this very carefully. It says, Then, after the opposition arose, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Notice again the word boldly. These apostles were not afraid to speak the truth. They weren't afraid of opposition, persecution, imprisonment, or even death. They had prayed in the early church, God, help us to speak your word boldly. And they're continuing in that tradition. They answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Wow, that's strong stuff. And indeed, this is a bold answer. They answered them boldly. They weren't trying to, you know, soft speak or do this with political correctness. They just spoke it out. Well, we gave you a chance. We came first to you Jews with the good news. Now, since you have rejected the word of God, and here's something we're going to look at a little more carefully, the indictment is you rejected the word and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. They passed a judgment on themselves. Paul says that they were not worthy of eternal life. Because of that, we now turn to the Gentiles. This is a strong indictment that Paul brings against these Jews who are rejecting him, and more exactly, they're rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the the Word of God. They're rejecting God's plan of salvation. But the New American Standard reads a little differently. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. The word judge there is the same word that's translated throughout the New Testament, with that very word, to judge. And that's really the best translation. You have passed a judgment, not about Paul or Barnabas, not even about the gospel or the word of God. You've actually passed a judgment on yourselves. Very interesting. You've judged yourselves 
unworthy of eternal life. God was offering them salvation, <coughs> but they've actually disqualified themselves. The word translated judge actually means to decide, uh, to determine. It even means to condemn, to damn, to sentence. So, in other words, these Jews had literally sentenced themselves to death. They had literally decreed, ordained, and damned themselves unworthy or unsuitable for eternal life. Let me read the whole verse to you from the Amplified Version, and I think you'll get the whole sense of it in this translation. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out plainly and boldly, saying, It was necessary that God's message concerning salvation through Christ should be spoken to you first. But, since you thrust it from you, you pass this judgment on yourselves, that you are unworthy of eternal life, and out of your own mouth you will be judged. Now, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, the heathen. You have passed judgment on yourselves, that you are unworthy of eternal life, and out of your own mouth you will be judged. Because of their rejection of the gospel, their rejection of eternal life, their rejection of this good news that the apostles were announcing, because of their rejection, Paul announces, now something has dramatically changed. We're released from our responsibility to you Jews. We were responsible to come first to you. That's the biblical mandate to always deliver the message, to give the opportunity first to the Jewish people to hear the good news. We're now released from that responsibility. Therefore, we are going to take this good news to the Gentiles. Now, when they say that in verses 46 and 47, they actually quote a portion of scripture from Isaiah 49 that is a messianic prophecy. It's normally quoted as being fulfilled by Messiah Jesus. But in this particular context, where Paul and Barnabas, as representatives of Jesus, they've announced the good news of Jesus to the Jews, the Jews have rejected that good news, they've passed judgment on themselves that they are not worthy of eternal life, the apostles announce, okay, good, now we're going to turn to the Gentiles, they would shake the dust from their feet as a sign of their leaving the Jews and now going to the Gentiles with the good news of the gospel. But in doing so, they quote this passage from Isaiah 49.6. Here's what they say. <coughs> We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And here's where it gets interesting. Quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. End quote. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Now, in Isaiah 49, 6, 
God is speaking to Jesus, to the Messiah, when he says, I have set you, capital Y, you, as a light to the Gentiles, that you, capital Y, you, the Messiah, should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. But, in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas quote this scripture, the Holy Spirit permits these servants of Messiah to apply the words to themselves. Notice again, I hope you're following me here, when they quote it, they're referring to themselves. I have made you, meaning Paul and Barnabas, a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the verse they quote to support the fact that they're now turning to the Gentiles with the light of the gospel. So, they've now announced, you Jews, you've passed judgment on yourselves, you disqualified yourselves from the gospel, now we're released from our assignment to you, we're released from our responsibility to you, we're now going to fulfill what Isaiah 49, 6 predicted, and we're going to take the light of salvation to the Gentiles. When they made this announcement, obviously the Gentiles were jumping for joy. Praise God! God is now bringing the light of salvation to the Gentiles. It says in the next verses from verse 49, <clears throat> the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But, here it comes, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, from verse 49, we get one of these little progress reports from Luke. Despite the Jewish opposition, the word of, the, word of God continued to spread throughout that whole region. But, when they actually threw the apostles out, they expelled them from the region, commanded them to leave. When Paul and Barnabas were forcibly evicted from the area, they did exactly what Christ had instructed his disciples when he was here on earth, which was to shake off the dirt from your feet. Luke, of all people, was the gospel writer who records this. Luke 9, verse 5, and then in Luke 10, we'll read both of the references. Luke 9, verse 5, Jesus spoke these words, If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Now, Paul and Barnabas took that literally. And I think they did that correctly. Jesus wasn't talking about, you know, do this in your mind, or this is a feeling that you'll have. No, he said literally shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town. It will be a testimony against them. Why? They did not welcome you. These people were not only not welcoming Paul and Barnabas, they were expelling them, evicting them forcibly from the area. So, they took Jesus literally, they shook the dust from their feet. 
Look also in Luke 10, verses 10 to 12. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. These are strong words. But these are the words of Jesus himself. When a town, or I think we can even extend this, when someone doesn't welcome you as a follower of Jesus, with the message of Jesus Christ, when they don't welcome you, when they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. Now, that doesn't mean spit on them and be mean and nasty and ugly with them. But it does mean there has to be a certain separation. And we're going to talk about this later on when we get to it. There is a certain truth, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday. It's called blood guiltiness. God told the prophet Ezekiel, If you warn the wicked man and he refuses to heed your warning, then his blood will be on his own head. It won't be on you. You're no no longer going to be held accountable. But, if you fail to warn him, his blood will be on your head. So, what's happening here? Paul and Barnabas have done their duty. They have done what God told them to do, they have fulfilled their responsibility of going first to the Jews, giving them an opportunity to hear the word. They rejected it, and now what Paul and Barnabas are essentially saying by shaking the dust off their feet, we're clear of any more responsibility for you. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, basically It's now between you and God. We're clear. We're free. Your blood is on your own heads. It's not on ours. Now, this gesture of shaking out the dust, shaking the dirt off your feet, uh, the original idea behind this gesture was that the town, the city, the community, or the group of people involved, in other words, the group against which this gesture was directed, it signified that they were doomed. Possibly, as is the case here, self-doomed. They had doomed themselves. They, they literally had damned themselves. They had judged themselves unworthy of salvation. So the shaking off of the dust directed against them was an indication that they had doomed themselves to destruction. A destruction so thorough that it extended even to the very dust in their streets. And therefore we must shake that dust off our feet. We must remove even the dust that's clinging to our shoes. It was a sign of repudiation and separation. Because of their rejection of God's word, there is now a severance between us. We're no longer responsible for you because you judged yourselves unworthy. However, the apostles shaking off the dust from their feet, in this particular instance, in Pisidian Antioch, it didn't mean a complete break with that city. Because remember, there were many believers in that city, and they would actually come back and visit them again in Acts chapter 14. So it wasn't a total severance from the entire city. It was a severance from those who had rejected 
the light of the gospel. I like verse 52. So after all this, they've been persecuted, they've been blasphemed, they've been forcibly expelled from the region, causing them to shake the dust from their very feet. It says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Nobody was leaving in defeat. This wasn't a loss. <clears throat> There's nobody dejected or down in the dumps. They're filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Reminds me of the apostles in Jerusalem when they were arrested and beaten, when they were finally released from jail. They went rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. What a privilege that they were rejected for the cause of Christ. And I'm sure they were remembering many of Jesus' words. They're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Because if they hate you, it's because they hate me. And if they hate me, they will also hate you. Woe to you if all men speak well of you. So, they were happy. They had done their job. They had faithfully delivered the message. Some received it. Some rejected it. And they move on. Now, we have a very lengthy section that I'm just going to introduce tonight. It's going to take us, I'm sure, one entire session, maybe even more, to get through this. Because it is such an important topic, I think it's often misunderstood, and without really searching it out, many Christians have often come to one conclusion or another without really considering all that the Scripture has to say about it. And I'm referring to a statement in verse 48, and I'll read it again says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And it's the next part we're going to take up next time. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now notice, this is right in conjunction with what the Jews had done. They had passed judgment on themselves that they were unworthy of eternal life. Okay? But the Gentiles who received the word of the Lord, here's what we're told. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. And maybe some listening to me already have formed rather strong opinions on this subject. I, I plead with you to lay aside your opinions until we get through many, many scriptures on this point. Basically, what we're going to be looking at is, is Luke saying the people who believed were already previously appointed so by God. In other words, they were predestined, preordained, they had nothing to do with it. Some were predestined to salvation, some were predestined to damnation and destruction, and in the end it really doesn't matter. Um, that's one extreme view, which is wrong. Is it saying that well, doesn't really mean that um, because they believed they got saved. Well, this scripture doesn't say that either. It's very clear. All who were appointed for eternal life. It's hard to get around those words. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. And what we want to look at next time is, first of all, what is the order here? Were they appointed first, and then they believed? Or did they believe, 
and therefore they were appointed. That may not seem to make much difference, but it makes a world of difference because it'll help us to go deeper into our discussion. Were they first ordained by God unto salvation? Or did they choose of their own free will to believe, and that and only that determines their being worthy of eternal life? Well, uh, again, this is a deep subject, and I felt to give it quite a bit of attention here, because it's something often misunderstood, and doesn't need to be a source of contention or argument, I think much rather it should bring us to a place of even deeper worship of God, admitting that there are things about God we may not even be able to comprehend or understand. His ways are past finding out. And so, I'm going to say right up front, um, I don't fully understand the answer to this question. And even when we get to the end of the whole thing, we're not going to have a clear this is what's right and this is what's wrong, I think quite the contrary, we will come to sort of a compromise understanding that both are true. God is sovereign. He ordains people to eternal life. And man is a responsible moral agent who must make his own choices. And again, remember, this is right after the Jews had passed judgment on themselves. It doesn't say God judged them. They passed judgment on themselves. In other words, they made some kind of a decision in their own hearts to reject salvation, to reject the word of the Lord. Others, mostly Gentiles, made a decision to believe. They honored the word of the Lord. They gladly heard and received the good news of the gospel, and they received eternal life. So, much, much more on this next time. If you have the notes, I would strongly encourage you even to read ahead through the notes. Familiarize yourself with a whole bunch of scriptures that we're going to be looking at on this topic, because this is... A deep subject. It has been debated for centuries and will continue to be so. But again, we're not looking to debate so much as to just get a deeper comprehension of what the scriptures mean. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Okay, more about that next time. We got to stop for now. And we'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for Luke, Lord, that you raised him up to be such a careful recorder of 30 years of church history. And Lord, we are so blessed to be able to read these accounts and these stories and even to go deeper into the understanding that the early church had about God, about the gospel, about prophecy, about salvation and eternal life. And God, we are praying that you would enlighten us. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Help us to understand the scriptures. Help us to know who you are. And help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, especially as next time we're going to delve deeper into this whole concept of the Gentiles being appointed for eternal life. Help us to understand these words. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And Holy Spirit, we're calling on you, we're trusting in you to do what was promised, to lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, I thank you for each and every one who's with us in this study. Richly bless them with the truth of your word. And let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. 
And Lord, enable each one of us to boldly speak your word, to be messengers of the good news to this dark and lost world in which we now find ourselves. Let us be those beacons of light and hope, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands. Bless us, keep us, make your face shine upon us, be gracious to us. Lord, turn your face toward us and give us your peace, your shalom. In Jesus' name.